Good morning. Please turn this way. Generally speaking, you don't have to put your sutra books in their covers behind you. You can just put them on the floor, except when we're going to have doksan next, like Thursday nights, Tedai Denpo, and then doksan, so we don't want you to run on top of them. Does that make sense? I went to a party last night, and among the people there, a well-known poet gave it. And among the people was somebody who looked pretty familiar, and sure enough, he came up to me and he said, do you remember me? I said, sure. (laughs) And turns out he had sat in the Zen Center of Syracuse little attic zendo in my house many years ago, about early 90s maybe. And the thing that he remembered most vividly was one evening somebody new came and she was having a really hard time. She couldn't sit still for even one second. But what made it worse, and maybe Shigetsu or Mokon, you may remember this, what made it worse was she was wearing a leather jacket. <laughs> and quite apart from, should we wear leather or not? It's very noisy to sit in the zendo in a leather jacket. <laughs> so even if you sit absolutely still, even your breath, <laughs> He remembered my saying, sit still. He said, you know, she didn't sit still at all. It didn't matter what you said. She couldn't sit still. But he said, I, re- I realized that I was sitting still. Wonderful. Everybody comes to the Zendo and feels, oh, I can't do this practice. It's so difficult. Everybody else must be doing good zazen, and I'm just here wandering around and waiting for the bell to ring. And somehow when he realized this poor woman, whatever was wrong, she couldn't even for one second stop rustling to have this feeling of, wow, despite how I feel that I can't do this, I just sat still. And I'm still sitting still. So wonderful. So I was thinking back to those old days. And, uh, you know, Lou was here a couple of weeks ago, and just uh, the uh, remarkable growth of this Sangha last Sunday. Last Sunday we had our envisioning day, or two weeks, when was it? Two weeks ago. And uh, thinking about past, present, future. And I was reading through an old session journal. I had gone to Daibosatsu for anniversary session, 20th anniversary session in uh, June of 1996. So going early to help out and helping Eiro Roshi prepare calligraphy, square shikishi, and stamping 
and making little boxes with tea bowls for everyone. 166 gift bags we made. And it was 20th anniversary of Daibusatsu, and at that session, just before it started, Saigyo Terry Keenan came with a contract to sign for this property. So 96, summer of 96, we officially moved in. And in 2006, we will have 10th anniversary here and 30th anniversary Daibosatsu. Not at the same time. Daibosatsu first, October 18th, 06, here. And as some of you heard in 2010, how many of you are planning to be here? <laughs> yeah. I'm planning to be here, but you never know. Anyway, in 2010, the Foreman House will have its 200th birthday. So we celebrate all of these anniversaries. You know, the Zen Center of Syracuse actually started in 1972 at SU. So in 2002, we had our 30th anniversary celebration. So now we get to celebrate having moved here, 06, and Joshua Foreman, first president of the village of Syracuse, and responsible for the Erie Canal, great vision, wonderful, built this house behind us in 1810. So, past, present, future. And on Thursday evening, we had a lot of people who were here either for the first time or had only sat once before New Year's Eve. Where's the dancing? <laughs> I think the only person of two of you were here that Thursday night, Virginia and Yose, right? Anybody else? You weren't at the tea, Daigon, yeah. So we had a wonderful discussion. We had um, three people from a class from SU who had chosen us for their project. We had our two military photojournalist gentlemen taking pictures every second. We had our group from Lemoyne. We and various other people. I think there were, you know, maybe eight or ten people who had sat more than twice. <laughs> the rest were all like, we're here. So one of the questions that came up had to do with why some people were standing during Kinhin, were standing facing the wall. So I explained 
about how the jishas were going around and taking care of things, and then in order to be out of the way during the kinin, they were standing facing the wall, waiting to come back. And so, you know, what were they doing? What were the jishas doing? So we had a little discussion about putting things in order and how deeply penetrating a practice it is to be aware and take care of things that are in disarray and how people feel so good to come here, peaceful atmosphere, and may or may not realize that part of that atmosphere is the care we give everything. And those of you who have been sitting for a while know automatically to make sure that everything is straight and good condition before Kinin starts. You look at your seat, let's see, and still the jishas go around. And somebody talked about how wonderful it was to come to a place where everything felt, well, you know, there's a lot of talk these days. There's even a magazine called Real Simple. So where everything felt cared for and uncluttered. And then we talked a bit about clutter, clutter of our lives, the clutter in our Houses, why is it so much easier to sit in the zendo? Well, take a look around when you go home. (laughs) So then I picked up this uh, issue of Tricycle every now and then. There's something worth reading. And this issue has quite a few good things in it. And there's this article called Clearing Clutter by Ann Cushman. And she, I I will read a few passages because I think that we can all relate. And I can especially relate because yesterday, Christine was helping me unclutter my study. Books in hand, I make valiant efforts to organize my closet, file my papers, clean out my fridge. But every attempt to create order uncovers new levels of disorder and demands systems I'm supposed to go out and buy with time and money that I don't have. Filing cabinets, drawer dividers, laundry marking pens, a trash bucket that hooks over the seat of my car. The systems I do manage to construct disintegrate at the slightest provocation. Reaching into the refrigerator for orange juice on the way out the door to yoga class, I knock over a carton of blueberries, which springs open, scattering berries all over the floor. The kitten dashes after them, batting them even further. I drop my yoga mat to grab the kitten, step on the blueberries, and grind them into my socks. Do I race out the door in blueberry-stained socks to get to yoga class on time? Or do I forgo yoga and take off my socks, put them in the laundry, get down on my knees, and pick blueberries out from under the refrigerator one at a time? So she decides she needs professional help. (laughs) And she goes online and with Google, she types in meditation and organization. Maybe some of you have already done this. And she finds that there is a little book called Clear Your Clutter with Feng Shui. Mm -hmm. Now she says, 
Frankly, I'm a little dubious about feng shui. Years ago, when I was an editor at a yoga magazine, our publisher hired a feng shui expert to help us solve our chronic organizational problems. The consultant hung flags over our office doorways to break up the stagnant chi, rang bells to clear the energy in our yoga room, and told us that our inter-office conflicts would vanish if we rearranged our desks so that all the editor's reproductive organs pointed in the direction of the production department. <laughs> Dutifully, we followed his instructions, but nothing really improved, and within a year, most of us quit. I want something more concrete. I want someone to tell me how to organize my papers, where to put my shoes, not inform me that my toilet is unfortunately located in the sector of my home that symbolizes prosperity. <laughs> so this feng shui expert comes to her house and she says, what's on the inside is not necessarily reflected on the outside, but what's on the outside always reflects something on the inside. She looks around the office and she says, you can look at this room and say, this is me, and then make a choice as to whether you want this to be you or not. When you do clutter clearing from this standpoint, it becomes a kind of meditation practice because you are ordering yourself by ordering the environment around you. So that makes sense to her. And she starts looking at everything like that. And she says, if I view tasks to rush through on the way to something more important, they become a crushing waste of time. But from the perspective of Buddhist teachings, each of these activities is a golden moment, an opportunity for full awakening, as priceless as a breath on the zafu or a dive into a mountain lake. And then she starts with this new wonderful appreciation to look at her stuff. As I cart a pile of catalogs to the recycling bin, I wonder, is clutter a byproduct of living in a culture so soaked in consumerism that it penetrates every corner of our lives with a glut of junk? Most Americans, I've read, use only about 20% of the things that they own. And then, of course, there's that billion-dollar industry of storage facilities, you know, like on Erie Boulevard or Ainsley Drive or wherever you go now, you can rent a place for all of your boxes of stuff that you don't know what to do with. But then she thinks back. Maybe it's not just overconsumption, she reflects. My life was untidy back in the days when I lived in one room in a communal house and could fit all my possessions in the trunk of my battered old Chevy and had to ask friends to bring their own mugs when they came over for dinner. Traveling through India, I marveled at my ability to create clutter in an empty ashram room with just the contents of my backpack. So this is very important for us because we come to the zendo, of course we sit down, we can create clutter around us very easily, even with just one cushion, one sutra book. Amazing. Then she goes through some precious old possessions. 
and wondering what to do, what to do with that Kashmiri shawl that she huddled under when she was in India. A faint whiff of cow dung and dust and sweat still clings to it. Can't get rid of that. And what about my wine-red wedding dress that I wore in a ceremony at Green Gulch Zen Center when I was six months pregnant? That baby died at birth. The marriage is now ending in divorce. What should I do with the dress? So she ends with this paragraph. Someday I'll know where to put my wedding dress. In the meantime, all around my home, I pick things up one at a time. I see them for what they are. Salt shaker, baby photo, dental floss, love letter, and I help each one find its true home. So I think that the appreciation for the way we interact with what we might call material objects, whether they have some special meaning to us or not, has a direct impact upon our practice. It may seem somewhat mystical to speak this way, but when you think about it, there isn't a single thing that is not Buddha. Many times we hear such teachings and it seems to just float by. Oh yeah, all beings without exception are Buddha. Even insentient things Buddha can't relate. What's that? How is it? And yet when we chant, as we did today, Bodhisattva's vow, what does it say? When I, a student of Dharma, look at the real form of the universe. It doesn't say, when I, a student of Dharma, look at the absolute or the formless realm, right? It says the real form, real form of the universe. The form of no form is form, right? Thought of no thought is thought. Not divorced from form, not divorced from thought. The real form of the universe, when I, a student of Dharma, in other words, when I have some clarity of seeing, when I have eyes to see, ears to hear. This morning, March 6th, 2005, geese flying north, so our usual dualistic way of thinking, you know, from the relative sphere, yeah, the geese are coming up, must mean that spring is coming. But what is it really when you have ears to hear? 
case. Fly north. All is the never-failing manifestation. Never-failing. Do you like it or not? Doesn't matter. Never-failing manifestation of the mysterious truth of Tathagata. This very thing itself. So among all the little scraps of paper that we unearthed yesterday, well, we started unearthing yesterday, was a little scrap on which I had written, this very cell is liberation. Hmm? How do you understand that? This very cell. How many cells are in your body? What is the cell you have constructed for yourself? Hmm? One and the same. Cell of liberation. Cell of confinement. How do you view it? So each little tiny speck of dust is nothing but Buddha. And we say in this chant, Bodhisattva's vow, this realization made our ancestral teachers and virtuous and masters extend tender care with a worshiping heart even to such beings as beasts and birds, even to rocks and bits of dust and cushions and paper and wedding dress. To have the understanding that each and to have the understanding that our interaction with tender care is a form of dedicating, worshipping, however you'd like to say, the worshipping heart, dedicated heart. When you feel stagnant and stuck and you can't finish something and it's just hanging over you and you don't know what to do and you feel your life can never flow again. Look around you. What's stuck? What have you not been looking at around you? Start to, with great appreciation, start to liberate. Start to show the direction home. Each thing. Each word. This realization teaches us that our daily food and drink, clothes and protections of life, all these things that we take for granted until some vast wall of water clears them away. These are the warm flesh and blood, the merciful incarnation of Buddha. Even insentient things are the merciful incarnation of Buddha. 
how do we treat them? When we realize that it's our own egoistic delusion and attachment through the countless cycles of kalpa that is creating the cell that we feel trapped in, then in Bodhisattva's vow we chant, in each moment's flash of our thought there will grow a lotus flower and each lotus flower will reveal a Buddha. Again, each thought as we are sitting, each thought. No need to think, oh, bad, bad thought. Just each thought. When we are not trapped in our egoistic delusion and attachment, each thought is nothing but Buddha realization, right here, right now. In one of the original teachings of the Buddha, Anguttara Nikaya Sutra says, Thus have I heard, the end of the world can never be reached by walking. However, without having reached the world's end, there is no release from suffering. And then the Buddha said, I declare that it is in this fathom-long carcass with its perceptions and thoughts, that there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. So this section of that sutra is part of the Buddha talking to the Deva Rohitasa, who has run day and night, day and night, day and night, to try to reach the end of the world. It sounds kind of like what modern science is involved in. Where did it begin? How did we get here? Where does it end? Let's follow the trajectory. Thus have I heard, the end of the world can never be reached by walking. So think about this sentence. What are we doing when we practice Sazen? So we all have this idea of gaining something, right? We're going to practice so that we're going to get to the end, right? We're going to practice so that we achieve, we attain, we reach the goal at the end of what it, we have, this trajectory, at the end of our trajectory to the very end of the, we call it, okay, practice. At the end of the world, there must be the rainbow, right? The pot of gold, right? Haven't we all been promised that? This is not unfamiliar, is it? No, okay. So the point is, we cannot help but have some kind of underlying understanding or, you know, uh, idea anyway, that if we practice hard enough, we will finally become a Buddha. So the Buddha said, 
the end of the world can never be reached by walking. Now this makes perfect sense in a totally logical way. Why? Why, Virginia? It's round, right. So what does it imply? Walking and going in circles. Walking and walking and walking and walking and walking. Beginning and end, beginning and end, beginning and end. Or another way to put it might be birth and death, birth and death, birth and death. Form arises, form disappears, form arises, form disappears. Or we might say samsaric realm, right? Uh, This is where our practice is embodied in this struggle to try to get better to try to achieve, try to reach that point. We, it's very sneaky. No matter how many times we say, no, 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 it's round, the world is round. There's no reason to think anything but, you know, this is part of that great scientific revolution. They discovered it's not flat, it doesn't have corners, there's nowhere to reach the end. We're gonna keep going around and around and around. Nevertheless, there is this kind of underlying feeling that if we could only practice hard enough or true enough, we would get something. We would find that end, that point called what? Enlightenment or Kensho, Satori, realization, liberation, liberation, even better, liberation. Oh boy, I want some. (laughs) However, the liberated one said, Without having reached the world's end, there is no release from suffering. Okay, so on the one hand, you can't get there by walking with the end in mind. And yet, without having reached where you can't get to by walking, what do you get? where does that leave you? So Jisho points down, (laughs) leads you down. (laughs) Where does that lead you? Right here, right? Right here. Does this make sense? Brett has this look on his face like, (laughs) what is she talking about? (laughs) It's not me, I'm just telling you. (laughs) This is... Anguttara Nikaya Sutta. (laughs) So then the Buddha says, I declare that it is in this fathom-long carcass. What does that mean? Hmm? This, right? This temporary arrangement of whatever we want to call it, rice bag, some of the ancient masters call it, right? It's in this, this fathom-long carcass with its perceptions and thoughts that there is the world, or another way of putting this is, what? The world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation. Does that have a ring to it? Four Noble Truths, yes? So the world, 
The world is both simultaneously the truth of suffering and the truth of liberation. We tend to create a gap. When we see that we are creating a gap, that is the origin. We notice it, the origin. And cessation, cessation of the world. What is that? What happens when we notice it? What happens when we bring our mind home? What happens when we find a home for that moldy something we can't recognize anymore in the refrigerator? Same thing. We bring it home. Reunite. This is when we say practice. This is what we are doing. It isn't something that we do in order to. It's what we are doing right here, right now, in this very moment, thinking, oh, the kids are at the door. Oh, or whatever. What is she doing? Whatever you may be thinking right now. This is it. This very thought is it. Not some absolute, quiet, perfect condition in which we hear the cry of geese. That too is it. But if we're wrapped up with thinking I should be, or I shouldn't do, or this couldn't possibly, or what happens when, or how do I get, then all these beings, sentient and insentient, are not seen, not heard. All these thoughts, this very thought, cannot be understood as realization itself. And so we have the fourth, it says, the path leading to the cessation of the world. Again, with our logical or dualistic minds, we think, oh, a path leading to the cessation of the world. That doesn't sound like a path I want to follow. (laughs) And yet, suffering, path. So it's up to us. How do we understand? Starts with right here. Starts with what is around us. Starts with how we take care, how we offer our reverential heart to everything. It's not some far distant goal. Just this. This. 